0: now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: The Department of Labor in the federal government has been, uh, for years, a sleepy little backwater. Uh, until recently, when uh, Tom Perez came there as Secretary of Labor, uh, uh, Tom Perez with a Background in civil rights, uh, the son of immigrants, and uh, a uh, uh, an engine that always runs on high has uh, taken on uh, the big issue of our time, which is how do we get up, how do we get wages up, how do we uh, reinvigorate the value of work uh, using the tools that he has uh, uh, invested in him, and uh, he has evangelical fervor. Uh, about this project, as you will hear Tom Perez, Secretary of Labor, so good to be with you. Um, I want to talk about you you've you 've been i think it 's fair to say an activist in your role, but I want to talk about how you got to be. Who you are before we sure. talk about what uh, you're doing, and you come from uh, from uh, an immigrant family. Absolutely. Uh, so, talk to me a little bit about that. Tell me. Sure. Tell me about your my life upbringing.
0: Uh, my life, David, is the intersection of Buffalo, New York, and the Dominican Republic. Uh, my maternal grandfather was actually the ambassador from the Dominican Republic to the U.S. Uh, in the early 30s, and there was a brutal, what turned out to be a very brutal dictator, uh, Trujillo, Trujillo, and once it became apparent that he was brutal, uh, in the aftermath of a brutal execution of about 20,000 Haitians that he ordered, uh, my grandfather spoke out and said, uh, this person's terrible, and he was declared non grata, and so our family, my mom's family got kicked out, my dad was part of the student activism movement, he left, came to the States, he was drafted as a legal immigrant, served with distinction in the U.S. Army. My parents met, got married, and after my um, dad got out of the Army in uh, Georgia, uh, he got a job at the VA hospital in the in the late 50s, and that brought them to Buffalo. When you're an immigrant family, politics is your lifeblood, because when uh, your family has been uprooted by political upheaval, you uh, that's that's a big part of your life. And I remember growing up, uh, politics was the currency in our family. And and the experiences that my parents had, they taught my siblings, I'm the youngest of five, they taught all of us to make sure that we love this country because it gave us opportunity and that we give back. And so actually, all my siblings are doctors, and I had to promise never to Where be a Where did you plaint- go wrong? Well, I had to promise never to be a plaintiff's personal injury lawyer, and I kept that promise. But uh, I, you know, people often ask me why didn't you become a doctor, and I think part of it is the fact that I was 12 when my dad died, and I didn't really have the exposure to his professional life in the way that some of my siblings how did that had. shape
1: you losing your dad at such an early. I, I oh. lost my father at uh, an early age as well.
0: Right. Well, you know, 1974 was the year my dad died, and if you had told me January of '74 that one of your parents was going to die. Uh, we would have all said it would have been my mother because my mother had a series of chronic illnesses. She had major surgery January of that year. She was just recovering when my dad had his first heart attack on Easter Sunday of 1974. And um, unbeknownst to me, it was a very serious one, but they, they just said, it. don't worry about it, Time It's mild. He'll be fine. And then at um, the end of June, he dropped dead in the basement of our house. And then after we got back from the funeral in the Dominican Republic, my mom got sick again. Uh, So she was in the hospital for a couple weeks, and I remember going to bed at night thinking, you know, they were telling me, don't worry, mom's going to be okay, and I remember thinking, fooled you once, shame on you, fooled you twice, shame on me. How
1: frightening was that to think that you'd be alone at 12?
0: Well, that was, uh, I, I think a big part of what motivates me and gives me kind of a sense of purpose and mission is that I don't take any day for granted. I mean, I... Uh, when, if you were to ask my team of folks that I work with, what, how, when does Tom get angry? And the answer would be, when he feels like we're wasting time. Because I think um, watching my dad die and then my mom have a series of chronic illnesses gave me that sort of fierce urgency of now. And and uh, you know, yesterday is history, tomorrow's a mystery, today is a gift. That's why we call it the present. And uh, that's sort of how I've been trying to live my life.
1: Do you? Uh I noticed that you um, that you worked on a on a garbage truck when you were trying to were you trying yep. were you putting yourself through school? Yeah,
0: or? I mean, I was. Uh, I never met him, but my favorite senator growing up was Claiborne Pell <laughs> because. Pell grants and uh, getting jobs. Were, Not a guy
1: who ever worked on a garbage truck. He though.
0: did a little better than that. I, yes. I, I actually went to school at Brown in Rhode Island, and I uh, he was definitely a yes. different uh, <laughs> yeah. different SES than me. Yeah. And uh, but you know what I the thing I loved about Buffalo was um, uh, Buffalo taught me the value of hard work. You know, my surrogate father growing up after my dad died was a guy who had a ninth grade education. Uh, He was the wisest man I ever met, and he really led me to believe that there's often... What did he do? He was a teamster, Mm -hmm. and uh, after the um, economy hollowed out in Buffalo, he lost his home. Uh, He worked at our uh, gas station at the corner of our street pumping gas. He did anything he could do to feed the kids, and uh, uh, he was just a remarkable person, and My dad died June 29, 1974. He died June 29, 2008. And my surrogate mother, his wife, died June 29, 2013. Mm -hmm. And you'll never be able to persuade me, David, that that was a coincidence because those were three remarkably meaningful people in my life. And they taught me the value of hard work and working on the back of a trash truck or picking up golf balls, which is another thing I did, or working at Sears. Uh, I always tell my kids and I always tell students that I've had the privilege of working with, whatever job you have, do your best at it. Give 100%. That's what you got to do. And uh, growing up in Buffalo taught me the value of hard work. It's a city that has taken a number of punches and they get up. And so I feel like I've taken a few punches personally and just some of our family's challenges. Although, frankly, I had such a good community in Buffalo, I always felt like I was a millionaire because I had so many Parents around and other folks, you know. When when I would, I went to a Jesuit high school in Buffalo, and you know, whenever the father son breakfast came around, there were always five dads who said, "Hey, come with us." So I I didn't I didn't know I was uh, anything less than you know the wealthiest guy on the face of the earth. You uh, you went to law school. You became a lawyer. I I saw somewhere
1: that you clerked for Ed Meese in the Justice Department.
0: I did. I uh, in the Ed Mid, Meese he,
1: being. Ronald Reagan's attorney general, very close to him.
0: Well, and uh, one of my memories, two stories about that very quickly. One of my memories that summer was we had an opportunity to meet him. And uh, the person coordinating it before all the summer clerks walked in said, wagging her finger at us, there will be no booing of the attorney general. Now, she didn't have to tell us that because, you know what, I, I had a great respect for the institution of the Justice Department. And I actually came, I got hired as a career person under, uh, I was hired in 88 when, uh, at the end of the Reagan administration, I came on under Dick Thornburg, who has since become a friend and a mentor. Uh, he and Ginny, as you know, were um uh, remarkably- I see, So Mies was gone by the time you were- Mies was, I, Mies was the attorney general when I was a summer clerk. Oh, I see. Uh, attorney General Thornburg came in. When and got I was, hired you as a, as when a I was the, uh, yeah, in 1989 I came on and and you know the thing about the Justice Department is that like all the three agencies I've been able to work at the career staff are uh, the spine of the agency and I'm I'm just as proud of the work I did under Attorney General Thornburg as I was the work I did under Deval Patrick and uh, Janet Reno and and the 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 work of the department. So much of it was um, and should have been apolitical. And when I came back to run the Civil Rights Division in 2009, the biggest tragedy was that in the Bush administration, they so politicized it that my predecessor was recommended for a criminal prosecution by the IG. They, they violated all sorts of principles of governance that had been in place from Republican and Democratic administrations for literally decades I mean, they they kept a file on applicants and, uh, you know, who they were donating to in political campaigns.
1: Do you—I uh, I, want to talk further about this, but I, I want to stay a little bit sequential because mm-hmm. you you also ran for office uh, uh, in uh, the early 2000s, I guess. I, right? did. I uh, did. And you served in a local government position in Mont- Montgomery, uh, Montgomery County. Montgomery County, Maryland. Yep, and North. you were a county council uh, member. What— what possessed you to go from um, being a uh, career lawyer for serving in the just- from serving in the Justice Department to running
0: for a, uh, a local office? Sure. A couple intermediate steps there. In the mid-'90s, I had started out as a career person. I then had the privilege of working on Capitol Hill in ninety five on a detail for Senator Kennedy. Mm-hmm. At the end of my two-plus years there, I was offered a job— being the number two person in the Civil Rights Division, which required me to give up my civil service protection. So I became a non-career person, and I did that for a little over a year, and it was an unmitigated privilege. And then I got the opportunity to work at the Department of Health and Human Services for the last two years of the administration as the head of the Office for Civil Rights. And then on January 20th, 2001, at about noon, I became unemployed. And for me, Life has always been the search, the search for how do you make the biggest difference in the world, and and I believe I always believe that life is a chapter book and uh, and timing is everything. And 2002 was the perfect time for a progressive Democrat to be in local government because uh, it was a tough time to be a progressive in Washington D.C. In 2002, Maryland elected its first governor since Spiro Agnew, who was Republican. And, and local government, where I was serving, was a remarkable opportunity to make a difference. And uh, we have a richly diverse community, and I represented the most diverse part of a diverse county. and the work that we were able to do to help uh, vulnerable people in our schools, uh, uh, vulnerable people get access to health care the bread and butter of: of yeah, local I, always government. Say, I, mean, I always
1: say that local government is the most vital level of government because it's closest to people and, it's, uh, Absolutely. and you're dealing with quality of life issues that, uh, that are really, really determinative of, of, of people's uh, lives. So what did you learn from all that?
0: Well, you can't afford to be ideological in local government. And the person who turned out to be probably one of my closest, if not my closest ally on the council was our lone Republican, Uh, a guy named Howie Dennis, who to this day is a good friend. And that's because we understood that uh, the definition of service is moving the ball down the field. And we got so much done together. And I I look at uh, a hospital that I drive past with regularity. Uh, It delivers more babies by a factor of two than any hospital in Maryland, Holy Cross Hospital. And there's a remarkable partnership between county government and the hospital, Uh, wherein uh, uh, immigrant women, most of whom are undocumented, get access to free prenatal care. And that is such a sensible policy because when somebody is pregnant, she needs that care. And we invested money as a county, and the state, uh, the uh, hospital invested money, and then we got emergency Medicaid funds for labor and delivery. And, And I'm proud of that because... Uh, when you are expecting a child, you should be treated with dignity, period, end of story, no other questions asked. And that's what we did. You, um, you ran for attorney general and lost, and then
1: you became uh, secretary of labor in Maryland. I'm interested, you, the two big areas that you've worked uh, yeah. have been civil rights and labor. Um, and uh, tell me how they... In your uh, view, kind of live together, uh, those those two uh, different disciplines that you've been so deeply involved
0: in. Well, those two disciplines are all about opportunity, and those two disciplines came together in the March on Washington, which was both a march for labor rights and a march for civil rights. Uh, the I Am a Man campaign for the minimum wage and, and the, the efforts for voting rights and other civil rights. And so they seem to me to be flip sides of the same coin, and that coin is opportunity and dignity. And that's why uh, working at the Department of Labor at a state level and now what I do here, uh, we deal with uh, so many people who are seeking dignity. and And at the Justice Department, I dealt with what I call the infrastructure of democracy, making sure that uh, police departments uh, function in an effective way, making sure that we reject false choices. It's not about you either keep your streets safe or you protect the Constitution. You can do both, and you know the ultimate in, the ultimate infrastructure of democracy, which is voting. And it, it's so sad to me that, that on this the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act, we find ourselves playing so much defense and. I think that's. I want to ask you about that. Where,
1: how, where, how would you assess where we are on civil rights now, fifty years after the the great uh, movement of the '60s? Uh, where are we as a country, uh, and and what? Where are we mm-hmm. from where uh, the, this president took office in two thousand and nine? Feels well, like we're very riven right now. Maybe some things have been churned to the surface that are coming out, but you know we have the. Black Lives Matter movement. We have this huge battle over immigration. We've got voting rights. Uh, some of the stuff we thought were, were, you know, on the way to being resolved. How do you, uh, you, 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 clearly you're an optimist, uh, but where are we on civil rights?
0: I think it's important to never lose sight of how far we've come. And the sacrifice, sometimes the ultimate sacrifice, that so many people have made. I mean, you you played an indispensable role in electing the first African American president, of this United States. I, I never thought I'd live to see that day. Uh, and you look at where we've come on things like uh, marriage equality. Never thought we'd see that. Uh, you look at you know where we're going in 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 a number of other areas, and there's been undeniable progress. But at the same time. We, you know, we say as a society that zip code should never determine destiny, but the reality is there's way too many opportunity gaps, whether it's Baltimore City, where I've spent a lot of time in the aftermath of the unrest. There's way too many efforts afoot to make it harder rather than easier for eligible people to vote. and. You know Ted Kennedy, who I had the privilege of working for, always said that civil rights is the unfinished business of America, and we've still got a lot of unfinished business. There, there is, um, there's a lot of people out there who feel, you know, in tough times they're always looking for someone to blame, and so we're immigrant blaming immigrants is not new. The Know Nothing movement was about blaming immigrants, and, uh, and, and you know the racism that we. How do you see, feel?
1: How do you feel listening to Trump now? Uh, uh Donald Trump and some of the others who are have a kind of nativist rap about uh about immigrants um,
0: coming from your background what do you hear when you when you hear that I hear everything that is not America I'm a, I'm, I'm I'm thoroughly offended and I I wonder how it is that somebody can continue to command the percentage of Support he can I mean he he is the modern day incarceration of the know nothing movement and and the good news is that the know nothing movement fizzled and it fizzled because this is a nation that summons our better angels. This is a nation in which the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward those who seek to expand opportunity, not toward those who uh, substitute cynicism for optimism but tom and,
1: the the um, it seems like if you look at the research and polling. Trump has really, his message is really resonant largely among non-college educated white people who have, uh, particularly men, who have seen their economic status change over time as the economy uh, has changed. Doesn't that create, and, and you see it reflected not just here, but Europe, uh, you know the UKIP movement in, in 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 England. You see Le Pen in okay. France, nativist, anti-immigrant, close the borders. Um, is this uh, is this not in part a function of economic factors that you confront every day as a labor secretary?
0: Well, again, this is not the first time we've seen this movement in in world history or American history, and the. The social compact is fraying for many. Uh, the the basic notion that I'm going to do better than my parents' generation, that's an article of faith. That we could put that in the Constitution because it's such an ingrained part of who we are as a nation. And for so many, they're not feeling it. And And the diagnosis of the root cause that people like Trump tap into is Uh, the social compact is fraying because immigrants are taking those jobs. The social compact is fraying because we're letting too many people get access to food stamps. Uh, And so you have this on-ran movement and you have the the xenophobia that you see. uh, When the reality is, I think, quite different. Uh, We have to build an economy of shared prosperity. This president's made tremendous progress. People move— People lose sight so fast of where we were when he took over. You don't. Yeah, I was the, there. The two million jobs that were lost in the three months before he got there, I'm constantly reminding people of that. And and this whole issue of stagnant wages is a big part of the unfinished business of this recovery, but that's not something that started at the Great Recession. That's been going on for decades. Right. So
1: what do we do about it? Uh, it seems to me I was just having this conversation with someone, we, when you have uh, 90% of Americans who really haven't effectively had a wage in a couple of decades, when you have the same median income as you had in 1999, um, we're really not fulfilling that value that we all subscribe to, that in America, if you work hard, you can get ahead, and, and people are becoming very alienated. I think that's one of the reasons why you've got uh, so many people saying the direction of the country is wrong, even as the economy has improved. They don't feel that improvement in their lives. From a policy standpoint, what can we do yeah. about it? I mean, it seems like this is the profound challenge of our time.
0: Oh, I, I agree that it is. Uh, building shared prosperity, making sure that this rising tide lifts all the boats and not the yachts exclusively, are uh, that's that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. And it seems to me that prescriptions are uh, there are a lot of things we need to do. And and we're doing a number of these at the Department of Labor, and one of the reasons I love working there is because we're at the center of so much of what the president's trying to do. I have to
1: say, you know, your enthusiasm is uh, is clear. There's when When you mention the Department mm-hmm. of Labor to people, I don't think they think of it as a, or they haven't yeah. in the last so many years thought of it as a kind of hotbed of problem solving. They think of it more as a place that tells you what the uh, you know unemployment reports are, and so on.
0: Well, we're, we're the Department of Opportunity, and what we're trying to do every day is swing the bat on behalf of working people, and here's how we do it. We have a proposal right now, a, a regulation that would help people who make overtime. When I was a kid growing up, David, in Buffalo, if my friend's dad or mom was a manager, that meant they were in the middle class. But the rules were changed and manipulated in the prior administration, and that, and and so... Uh, what happened is uh, the rules for governing o- eligibility for overtime were changed, and they were changed to make to give all the leverage to employers and take all the leverage from workers. So I meet people working 70, 80 hours a week and making $25,000 a year, which is basically the minimum wage. So we're working on that. The um, 2 million home health workers who were making minimum wage, uh, we closed a loophole in the Fair Labor Standards Act so that they can get minimum wage and overtime protections. And these are basically women of color who are working 80 hours a week and making 400 bucks a week. Uh, That's not who we are as a nation. We're working on a retirement proposal. You know, people think that when you go and get advice about how to invest that hard-earned 401k plan, that that person has an obligation to put your best interest first. Some do, and, and most don't have that obligation, and, and literally tens of billions of dollars of money that should be in consumers' pockets is being lost. That's what we're doing at the Department of Labor, making sure that we are helping folks. And then finally, you know, one of the best ways to get ahead in life is to upskill. And there is um, you know, a silent movement that we are helping to build to help people get the skills they need for the 21st century. That's how we can help lift wages. is I Ryan. actually,
1: I, I actually uh, when I was at the White House, my thought was that the departments of labor and education should be merged because their missions are very much uh, the same, and train, education and training is integral to lifting wages and building the labor force and so on. As you can imagine, uh, there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm uh, in Washington for anything that would cause two bureaucracies, as it were, to to merge. But aren't they like deeply related? E- education and labor and wage growth and so
0: on. Absolutely. I mean, my parents always taught me. Education. Not asking you to disband your department. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. I thought you were asking Arnie to disband his. Well, uh, <laughs> he'd probably be willing since
1: he's leaving in a few months, in a few weeks. Well, here's the
0: reality: um, we work closer together than ever before, uh, and here, and here's an example: the the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act. Was the reauthorization of all the, the workforce programs. Half of that law is administered by the labor department and half is administered by the education department. And now we require states to submit a joint plan. In the old days, we were stovepiped. And so you know people don't have a disability they don't have a, a disability problem that's a DOJ problem or a DOL problem or a HUD problem or an education problem. They have a challenge. I I need a better job. I have a, a disability, and I need I need help. And so what what we're, our job is to implode stovepipes and build one big sandbox to make sure that there's no wrong door for any person coming in. That's what making government work is about. And and the thing that I love about my job, David, is I did this workforce stuff at a local level, and I did this workforce stuff at a state level. And actually, the question that you asked about combining education and workforce. We actually did that in Maryland because I looked at go. what was happening. Great minds think a lot and I looked at we did that because I looked at the Workforce Investment Act and I said, Why is it being administered by two state agencies? And the answer was because that's how it's done at a federal level, to which I said, Well if there's dysfunction at a federal level, does that mean we have to mimic dysfunction at a state level? And so uh, we combine the two at uh, a state level, and I think we're better for it because it's easier to serve people. Well, you should leave a strongly worded memo on this when
1: you leave in two thousand and, and, and seventeen. I'll Look, tell them that Axelrod. Yeah, sent me. that's fine. That'll get you a long way. Yeah. Uh, labor unions. Uh, you know, you mentioned the civil rights movement. Labor movement very much uh, funded in uh, the civil rights movement. And back in that day, and certainly in the fifties large numbers of Americans belong to labor unions. Uh, Today, that number is in the single digits. Um, What has that meant? First of all, what happened? And secondly, what has that meant in terms of uh, uh, wages and quality of life for folks in this country?
0: Well, I think labor unions brought us the middle class, and collective bargaining brought us the middle class. And when you look at uh, the... The strength of the middle class—you start with the post-war period, though the, the, the America's best, greatest generation that that fought and won that war came home, and many of them were labor leaders. And the link between labor union density and middle-class uh, strength, I think, is undeniable. And as we have seen, density go down—it's still about eleven point seven percent. Oh, but I'm you're, sorry, you're yeah. correct. Private. Sector labor That's what union I was density to. is is in Six single percent, digits, seven percent, something yeah. like that. Public sector labor union density is is um, higher, but there is an unmitigated and undeniable assault on labor unions. And and I was taught that uh, when we speak collectively with one voice, we all do better. And and this assault on labor unions and there's a Supreme Court case right now that is nothing less than a direct assault on public sector labor unions and. I think that's a big part of the hollowing out of the middle class, because uh, when you're in a workplace and you're alone, your voice isn't nearly as strong as when you're together. And some of the best evidence of that is these contracts that have just been uh, negotiated with the the big three U.S. automakers. In the depths of the recession, uh, they came together around a vision of shared sacrifice. People took a haircut. And now that that, as a result of some of the president 's leadership, uh, American automakers are doing better they 've just negotiated very generous contracts for these workers. They have collectively uh, helped hundreds of thousands of workers, and that 's why uh, collective bargaining to me is so important and but there 's some folks out there on the far right who who want to eviscerate it, and there's some governors who get a lot of traction uh, doing the same
1: i Look, I, I'm a supporter of labor and I accept many of the arguments you're making. But one of the reasons why uh, this has worked uh, of late in the auto industry is that uh, faced with a crisis uh, back at the beginning of this administration, 2009, uh, everybody went in, including the auto workers, and they negotiated more flexibility in their. Uh, contract and they 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 negotiated an upside for themselves when the company does well, uh, and in some ways that struck me as um, uh, a forward thinking, a forward looking way of thinking about these agreements. Uh, do you think labor generally has been as nimble as it should be in thinking? There are some unions, you know, that are quite progressive and innovative. Other unions seem very much stuck in the past, it seems to me. Do you think the labor movement is as nimble as it should be in trying to become um, uh, partners in that process of uh, advancing their industries while getting uh, the upside of uh, of those industries, well, of, of, a, of their sure. company's progress? I've
0: had a lot of conversations with labor leaders about the existential threats. And, and- to a person, they understand that if we're going to regain market share, we have to uh, be smarter. And and again, I think the examples of uh, these recent contracts embody that shared sense of uh, we're all in this together that have helped unions succeed. You look at the Fight for 15 movement. Um, SEIU is uh, playing a critical role in that. And I, I think that is a remarkable movement. And And what it illustrates is... Uh you know, I think labor leaders like uh you know, Mary Kay Henry, uh SCIU, Lee Saunders, yeah. uh of of uh, SCIU and AFSME respectively, they understand that we're not defining success anymore by the number of uh union members we were able to increase last year. We're defining success by the number of people we're helping. The Fight for Fifteen movement, they have not gained uh thus far any new union members but they built a movement two three years ago if you had said $15 minimum wage in a city people would have laughed you out of the room now that's the fight for 15 the minimum is, wage
1: should be $15 well
0: i think we should have both 12 and 15 i think we need a federal floor of $12 an hour so that you can reflect the fact that uh $12 an hour is what it takes for a A a worker to be just above the poverty line, and I think that states should be able to go above that, like Seattle and elsewhere, to reflect the cost of living. Because states always could, right? States always could, and in fact are doing more of that now because the Republican leadership in Congress has been so intransigent in not raising the minimum wage, and so uh, more and more people are falling further and further behind. And you got to win either the geographic lottery uh, to get an increase in the minimum wage, or you got to win the boss lottery. Uh, to uh, earn a decent wage and that's not who we are as a nation
1: let me talk to you about public employee unions you know here in Illinois uh, we've got a a huge crisis because we've got the worst pension uh, hole in the country Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a tussle between the governor who wants to sort of uh, uh, decommission public employee unions in the legislature Um, but there is the sense uh, that um, public employees uh, and some of these pensions that were negotiated uh, were unaffordable. And, of course, taxpayers end up having to back uh, back them up. Um, what would you advise public employee unions moving forward in an environment that seems to me to be growing uh, more and more hostile? Well,
0: I, I think you see across the country places like California where there have been negotiations around uh, this precise issue that... The key is to make sure that you do it in the context of collective bargaining. And and what I see in a number of states is uh, efforts by Republican governors, some, I don't want to paint with an unduly broad brush, but the, all the ones doing it are Republican, to use this issue as a wedge to achieve what their real goal is, which is to eviscerate public sector labor unions. That is the real goal. That's the goal of this Supreme Court case is to basically uh, do away with this. And, and, and you know, we, we live in a nation right now where there are some folks who think that the Gilded Age was a golden age, and they think that if I blow out my neighbor's candle, it's going to na- make my candle shine brighter. And, and I don't believe that if my neighbor, the school teacher, if, if I manage to hollow out his or her pension you know, I don't have a pension, but that, that doesn't make me feel any better. I think the solution to that is to help lift wages and prosperity for everyone so that we can all enjoy that basic pillar of the middle class, because retirement security is one of the five pillars of, of, of the middle class. And the notion that the, the, the solution here is to effectively unilaterally uh, pass laws, which is what is, is underway in a number of states. Uh, I don't think that's the answer.
1: Um, if Arnie Duncan were sitting here, our buddy Arnie Duncan, mm-hmm. the education secretary, he would say, I think, that beyond wages, that uh, unions in the education sector need to give more flexibility uh, to uh, uh, reward good teaching to do innovative things that perhaps the teachers unions haven't been as flexible as they should be in these areas. Isn't that kind of, isn't that a fair commentary?
0: Well, actually we did a champions for change event at the white house where we highlighted, uh, you're obviously a master of alliteration. I, yes. let me say that. Well, thank, yes. uh, thank you, sir. Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking of other alliteration that comes to mind. Um, but, uh, One of the partnerships that we brought together there at that event was uh, the Montgomery County, where I grew up uh, and served, uh, the teachers union there, and um, the school system. And one of the reasons why I'm a proud public school parent in Montgomery County is because the partnerships that have been in place there have not simply resulted in – fair treatment of teachers on the issues of wages and pensions, et cetera, but have resulted in remarkable innovation. There's, a, there's an entire peer review process so that if you have an underperforming teacher, uh, there is a structure in place to deal with that because the union recognizes that nobody benefits when you have an underperforming teacher. The whole reauthorization of ESEA in no small measure is uh, being helped by the AFT and the NEA, who have said, I think correctly, that we overtest people, and so you know the critique well, that. But uh, then there's
1: the issue of say you have a brilliant young teacher, uh, and you've got a teacher with gr- a lot of seniority who may not be a, a great mm-hmm. teacher, but is protected by seniority rights when if when if there are changes that have to be made or. Uh, Economies that have to be found. It's the younger, young, younger teacher who often has to uh, leave, um, and that, and it, it makes sense to me that in other pursuits that seniority should be should reign supreme. But when you're talking about teachers, shouldn't um, the quality of the teacher dictate uh, some of these issues? Well,
0: again, I, I, I all, we're all a function of our own experience, David, and and I've seen. Uh, in my neck of the woods, that we have been able to work through a lot of these mm-hmm. issues, and uh, that's one of the reasons why I, I th- so you think
1: there should be that kind of flexibility. Well,
0: well, we've been able to you need to have fairness as well because uh, you know part of what this lawsuit uh, I, i've I've you seen sh- lawsuits relating to so-called teacher tenure and And the argument is that there shouldn't be teacher tenure. What teacher tenure means is that you can't be fired unilaterally that if you've been there two or three years, I forgot what the period of time is, that before somebody fires you, you need to have an opportunity to defend yourself. I think that's I think that's fundamentally fair. And so I, uh in these conversations yeah, I think the, we the have thing a, I'm
1: talking about more is the last in, first out kinds of provisions that would uh basically prioritize by seniority rather than uh, quality in the in the system. But um, I, I You know, I I just think, to me, in a sense, the UAW posture was kind of an inspiration because um, it seems to me that I revere teachers. I think they're the most important people in our society, honestly, and we should pay them that way and we should treat them uh, that way. Uh, But uh, it seems to me that the uh, teachers' unions also ought to be partners, as the UAW was with with the automakers in remaking the school systems for the 21st century, that they ought to be fully invested in that mission and not just traditional labor unions, um, you know.
0: Uh, well, and, and I agree with everything you just said, and but I would add one more sentence to it, which is in my own experience, I have seen that partnership in action, and I think we are a better school Do you think that's the norm? In,
1: I'm happy Certainly for Montgomery County.
0: Well, I'm not just talking about Montgomery County, but I mean, I I, I was up in New Jersey uh, recently because as you said before, um, the educational continuum, I, I end up meeting a lot of folks uh, in uh, the secondary school level and I have great admiration for the work that's being done there. And so I've seen innovation in various high schools and middle schools across this country because so many of our investments are actually going down to that level, because we're trying to prepare people for the careers of tomorrow. And I've been struck by the fact that um, folks in the labor movement understand that, uh, you know, yesterday's battle might have been, you know, union against management. Today's battle is we're competing against the world. Uh, I'm proud of the fact that Maryland has one of the highest uh, ratings on K-12 to education. But you know what? I'm not resting on my laurels because I'm not comparing Maryland to New Jersey. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at Maryland versus Korea or Maryland versus um, other countries that we're competing against. And that's what we have to do nationally is look at the United States against the rest of the world. And, and that's where I see um, – Uh, real optimism because I've seen these partnerships, the recognition that we are indeed all in this together. And I'm heartened by the fact that I think we're going to get a reauthorization, a bipartisan reauthorization of the Elementary and Secondary um, Education Act. And, And again, and that's a partnership that in that particular bill includes labor unions, includes management, includes all the stakeholders in the education arena. I think there's an understanding that uh, we need to make changes as to how we do things.
1: Very difficult medications still takes them. Um, And um, she uh, lives in a, she's, she's happy and healthy today, but, but she bears the scars of that experience. She lives in a community of people Mm -hmm. um, with, uh, with intellectual disabilities within that community. She, she works i mean she does lots of things but she works and sometimes she works on projects that they uh, that they get the subject has come up now and i think it's before you of how uh these uh these workers with disabilities should get paid and are they being exploited and it, does it undercut uh, other kinds of workers how do you strike the balance between the fact that um the opportunity itself to learn by doing work has been really, really important for someone like my daughter. And if you impose a, the minimum wage, for example, on that work, it's likely the work will go somewhere else, and uh, she won't get that opportunity. Uh, how do you balance that against the, 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 the uh, fairness to her as someone working, fairness to other workers, and yet keep the program uh, available to people like her.
0: Well, I've had the privilege of uh, working with a lot of various stakeholders in the disability rights community on this issue, and I think the most important thing we can ever do in this is to make sure we listen and bring a healthy dose of humility. Well, to that's the why enterprise. that's why I'm raising it, brother, because, because uh, this is a yeah. concern to me. I, yeah.
1: I, I I don't I I, I don't want uh, to see bad things happen in. Uh,
0: with all good intentions. Well, and the doctrine of unintended consequences is something that we're always mindful of. At the same time, uh, I was as I was listening to you, I was thinking about a case we did recently in Rhode Island. Um, there were uh, a number of, of young adults with disabilities who were in sheltered workshops making sub-minimum wage. And uh, there were a number of, of folks that we interviewed who said, you know, I can do more and I want to do more, and I haven't been able to do more. And so working with all the key stakeholders, we were able to forge a solution in that situation. And and the thing that I remember the most about that case is the mother of one of the uh, people with disabilities that we were able to help, who was exceedingly and understandably and appropriately skittish about what we were doing. Because she, her daughter had been doing this for many years, and she thought that was her ceiling. And it was remarkable to her to watch her daughter thrive. Mm-hmm. And any parent, I mean, I, I have three kids, and I will do anything for them. Yeah. As, no, that's as why I'm you. so thrilled and with so what my daughter's
1: experience, the, because I've seen her... Uh, blossom and now she show more independence, more initiative than I ever thought possible, largely because she had uh, experiences that were afforded to her through this, these workplaces and other experiences she she had here. So I, I don't want to see, um, as I said, you know, and I think I speak for a lot of parents on this. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and, I, and the the legal standard is, you know, what is the most integrated setting appropriate to the individual's needs? It's not a standard that says here's a one size fits all approach for which everyone. is exactly
1: what I think we want to and, avoid. Uh, and I and we and, all we and, all see people who don't have disabilities. Uh, we we are we are so. Diverse and different, and everybody has their own needs, and everybody has their own strengths, and we recognize and we honor that. Uh, we shouldn't then say, "But people with disabilities, we're gonna, we're going to decide uh, for each one of them exactly how they live, how they work, uh, and so on." I, I think that does them a great disservice. It, it is an arrogant uh, view to think that we, we can, uh, we as a society. Uh, should make decisions that they should make for themselves, that their families should make with them.
0: Well, and I think that's why we have uh, attended to this with, uh, I think, a singular sensitivity that is appropriate in this circumstance. And and again, I, I some of the results that I've observed, where uh, we've seen individuals working for two, three dollars an hour, and now they are literally living independently. They're making twelve dollars an hour. Uh again, there was a case in Rhode Island where uh this couple just got married. Both of them were in sheltered workshops, uh making sub minimum wage and now they're living together. They're both married. They're married. He has a and crime I'm I'm and, and I'm that, inspired that worked by for him like that, and that may not work for exactly. others. Exactly. That's and the so point. So that's why it requires a sensitivity. Um, and uh, and an understanding that there's no one size fits all solution for right. this. That's exactly um, right. And so, uh, this is one of many reasons why I love the work that I do. Because, uh, you know, the I think it was uh, I used to work at HHS, and Hubert Humphrey's bust was on the Humphrey Building there. With a, one of the things he often said, which was the moral test of our strength as a nation is how we treat those in the dawn of life, our children; how we treat those in the twilight of life, the elderly; and how we treat those in the shadows of life. And I've had the privilege of working with people in the dawn of life, the shadows of life, and the twilight of life, and uh, it it has been an unmitigated privilege. And and what I have learned is that um, the most important enterprise I can bring to bear, regardless of the context, is a good listening ear and a healthy dose of humility and in Washington there's a lot of folks who believe that they know it neither all. of those
1: qualities are necessarily yeah. associated with Washington Yeah, right?
0: well, I mean there you know we live in a world of seldom right never in doubt and and when what we really need right now um I, is um you know we need Ben Franklin's of the world you know the the leather apron club that he started Uh, we could use a little bit more of that because we talk past each other, whether it's conversations about what we -hmm. should do in the disability community, whether it's conversations about what we should do on immigration. um, It it is uh, really hard to get things done um, in Washington. And, and, you know, if there's one thing that Ted Kennedy taught me above anything, and he was a tireless champion for the rights of people with disabilities, among others, he taught me that idealism and pragmatism are not mutually exclusive. Right. And in, in Walter Isaacson's biography of Ben Franklin, he you know, he talks about how you know, the the existential crisis of the nation was hanging in the balance and and they they did something which is absolutely treasonous in the year 2015 for some, which is they reached principled compromise. Right. And as Walter says, uh compromisers may not make for heroes, but they sure as heck make for great democracies, right? And um, well, um, this is uh, this is, of course, one of the great issues of
1: our time, which is the value of compromise, um, and we'll and then, see more uh, discussion of that during this election.
0: Yeah, and I'm proud think. of that. That's what Ted Kennedy taught me, as much as anything, was that. Idealism and pragmatism are not mutually exclusive. And you look at the number of Republicans that he worked with, whether it was— Yeah, no, it was um, amazing.
1: And several of them spoke at his uh, memorial uh, service yeah, in, in, Oran, pa- in an impassioned way. Orrin Hatch, right. John McCain. Right. I,
0: I, you know, I, I worked on a hate crimes bill with Locke Faircloth, who couldn't have been more of an ideological opposite. But uh, they found common ground, and it was fun to watch. Yeah, it is fun to work. watch, and
1: hopefully uh, we can see
0: that in the future. Amen.
1: So you've got um, uh, 15 months left, or something? Of
0: 432 days, but who's counting?
1: Well, we won't get into the hours because who knows when people will listen to this podcast. But right. uh, uh, what 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 do you do next? What does Tom Perez do next when you when you leave mm-hmm. this job?
0: Well, I'll be honest with you. I focus very little on that question because I feel like if I go out for a two-hour lunch with David Axelrod to talk about my future. That's two hours I can't get back. And by the way, I do want to go out for a two-hour lunch someday with David Axelrod. Uh,
1: uh, We should go to Manny's, my favorite deli in Chicago. I always have the most provocative discussions, the most productive discussions there over a corned beef sandwich.
0: Well, it works for me. Okay, Uh, I— you know, I always but you see yourself frustrated. running for
1: office in the future? You did that once. Do you? How? I presume that you're not just going to. You're a. You're you're relatively young, especially compared to uh, uh, the average age of politicians in Washington these days. You, do you um, do you see yourself active in the
0: political arena when you leave here? I always want to make a difference, uh, and there are many different ways in which you can make a difference. I've got three kids: nineteen, seventeen, and thirteen. In uh, September, lots of college, lots uh, of college as to of, pay for. As of September of 2016, I will have two children in college, and uh, my expected uh, sounds bill like the private practice of law, will, my friend, uh, is in order for our you. Our expected annual tuition bill will probably yes. be between 110 and 125 thousand dollars for one year.
1: Yeah, there's a there's a problem for uh, yes. the labor force uh, now yes. and in the future.
0: Yes. Now, and uh, my wife who. Uh, it works with uh, homeless people, uh, and we both have modeled for our children, and, and we wouldn't trade anything we've done. But uh, with the choices we have made in our career, uh, the opportunity costs in terms of uh, things we didn't uh, do, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Uh, but as I said before, I, I really, I think that looking for the right job is a full time job, and as long as we have the people that I meet who are looking to upskill, or the veteran who's out of work, or the person with a disability like the one I just met today in this conference I was at who is counting on us to uh, deliver for them. Um, I feel like I need to give 24-7. I I literally have a piece of paper on my desk that, that marks down every single day till the end, and it's not because I am trying to get out the door. It's because it goes back to the beginning of this conversation, I live my life with a sense of urgency, and I think the worst thing in the world you can waste is precious time. And so uh, my singular focus is on making sure we take to the finish line a number of uh, initiatives that we've put in place, all of which are designed to address the fundamental challenges of our time. And I'm proud of the fact that so much of what we're doing, whether it's paid leave, wage issues, uh, investment in skills, you know, that's what folks are talking about. On the campaign trail, or that, at least that's what Democrats are talking about, uh, because this is what keeps people well, up at night.
1: I hope, and we can, we should close on this note. But I, my 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 fervent hope is that once the nominees are chosen, that this issue of how we uh, make the value of work uh, real and recognized. Uh, in the future is the fundamental issue of the campaign, because it, it seems to me it goes to, right to the character of who we are as a country, and what we believe in as Americans, that in America, if you work hard, you can yep. get ahead. And I know that's the goal that you're working toward, and I really appreciate sitting with you today.
0: Well, uh, the dignity of work is what we're talking about. Yeah. And, um To uh, end with a pun, it has been excellent. Ah, with you. Thank you. You're the first one to, (laughs) you're
1: the first one on the Axe Files to use it. Thanks, Tom. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Axe Files. For more podcasts like this, subscribe to the Axe Files on iTunes. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.